This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 14 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisors, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of Horse Radio Network. Today, we have two icons in the horse industry, one in Canada and one in Australia, one who agreed to get up very early for our show, which we really appreciate. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to Horsemanship Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 15th and the 30th of the month. And today, I have my producer, Jen, with me. Hi, Jen. Hi. It's great to be back again. You, We're having a worldwide trip today. This is very exciting. Isn't it fun? Yes. We had the opportunity to talk to uh, a wonderful lady together from... Um, Canada and about stable health, and I think you'll like her. And you popped in with a really good question. I was glad to hear that. And uh, and then also, just uh, he has doctor in front of his name, but you know, don't let that fool you. He is a horseman back down to his roots in Australia. He started off um, jumping and eventing, and mostly just banjee on the beach down in. Uh, the re- the remote areas of Australia. So you'll love to hear from him because he is a horse person first. But he's also world-renowned for his training, and we'll get to hear a little bit more of the science part from him, too. And that's going to be Dr. Andrew McLean. He even sounds Australian. That's awesome. Yeah, he's a great Aussie, though. You know, I bet he, he tips a beer or two. What do you think? We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised. No, it's true. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. Every Aussie I know is a lot of fun. And I understand understand that next week you guys are going to be off to the Rolex. Is that right? We are going up to Lexington, Kentucky for the Rolex Kentucky three-day event, the only four-star level uh, event that is held in North America. And the four-star level is as high as it gets. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, if you ask competitors, the four-star events, there are a total of six of them worldwide each year, are harder than the Olympics. Wow. Um, the, even though they're, according to the rule book, the same level as the Olympics, generally mm-hmm. speaking, the courses at the annual four-star events are more difficult because in the Olympics, the course designers want to allow countries who have less experienced and less in-depth teams in the eventing discipline, they want to have successful runs. They, they're not out to get anybody dumped. Sure. Um, so the courses tend to be just a little bit easier. And even if it's only one tick easier when you get to that level, it's a big difference. So we're mm-hmm. really excited. Uh, we go almost every year. Uh, the Kentucky Horse Park, all 1,500 acres of it, will see mm. about 60,000 visitors in wow. four days. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. It's like a vacation for you, too, I understand. Is that it's, right? It's a, wor- it's a working vacation. We get to visit all of our friends from Kentucky. Anybody who is into eventing makes a pilgrimage there. Uh, so nice. it's, a, it's a great deal of fun, and we broadcast live while we're there from the nice. Kentucky Horse Park. And this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. Our very first ever meetup, we're going to do a listener meetup. We're going to have five different hosts from various shows on the Horse Radio Network, which will be at the meetup and a half an hour before the cross country starts we're going to meet up at jump number one and hang out together and walk the course for a little bit together and hopefully meet lot meet lots and lots of listeners 
Great, great. I, I'm sure people want to plug into that. Anybody anywhere near Kentucky, head that way. It's easy Sounds to get fun. to. Uh, according to the uh, the folks who run the Lexington Tourist Bureau, we are within a four-hour drive of lots and lots of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet it is just so gorgeous out there and away yeah. from everything it feels like, doesn't it? It's a beautiful part of the world. Yes, they are very, very protective of the Kentucky Horse Park, park and the grounds surrounding it. So... Unlike many horse show venues, which are surrounded by hotels and cities, Mm -hmm. uh, the Mm -hmm. Kentucky Horse Park is not. Now, the downside to that is you have to drive a half an hour to get to your hotel. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, but it's worth it. But on the other hand. Did you know that my mom has a sculpture in the horse park there? I didn't. Which one? She has it. You know what? I can't remember. I have. I, I actually have been there too. I can't. Re- she has quite a few in her repertoire now. <laughs> it's, it's not but, the. It's not the donkey. We have Glenn. A picture. No. Of Glenn. Okay. It's not the that donkey. Donk. But donkey donk is wonderful. But he doesn't fit the theme of the Kentucky Horse Park. <laughs> I'm sure it's a thoroughbred, but I, I don't know if it's Lomitas, which it might be, or some oh, of the other wow. beautiful. I'm going to have to go she- find it now and take a picture. Oh, please do. Or maybe it's alleged another one of their um, world's champions that they that they raced and trained too. Huh. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just it fits Kentucky Horse Park, and she's she just felt completely honored when they invited her to how cool play, is that? Play sculpture. Yeah, it's very cool. But, See, but, we're we're everywhere. Yeah, and <laughs> so that's one of the cool things about the Kentucky Horse Park is they have a a an impressive horse museum there, which is part of the um, Smithsonian group in that they're associated with the Smithsonian Institute now. Um, so they have a really cool re- uh, museum. They have all these sculptures in the outdoor sculpture garden and they have the real horses and they have competitions. And I really need to get a kickback from the tourist viewer for all this. Yeah, you should. Yeah, <laughs> <really you're right. laughs> do. Hey, I, before we get started with the show, I wanted to mention this to you because I thought it was pretty cool. Okay. And you'll probably go, oh, ho-hum, but I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, Glenn and I went to a local eatery last week a little uh-huh. local Italian restaurant that all only locals know about. Okay. It's a little hole in the wall in a strip mall. And we have found that Italian restaurants in strip malls are always good. So The best. Yes, yeah. that's where you go. Don't go to those standalone <laughs> chain joints. Find the little dinky joint in the strip mall. And uh-huh. they have lots of TVs all over this little dinky Italian restaurant. And all the locals <laughs> come, come in in their dirty boots and uh, riding pants. And we're sitting there having ourselves a calzone. And on one of the TVs, because, of course, every single TV is tuned into something horse, because that's uh-huh. what we do here in Ocala, there yeah. was Monty doing his TV uh-huh. show. Ah, backstage pass, maybe? Uh, it, it was... On tour? Was he on tour? I think it was backstage pass. I didn't get yeah. to see the beginning of it. We came in, it was about a third of the way through. But what was awesome for me is I was sitting there going, I know those people, and they're on TV. <laughs> <laughs> He's important. <laughs> It's, like, it's a great. Guy. It's a great show. I'm so glad to hear you got to see. Yeah, because he's on um, HRTV in the U.S. That's horse racing TV. Mm-hmm. Or I told him they should change it to horse and rider because there's so much stuff on there now. Yeah, uh, but they haven't listened to me yet. But it and then rural in Canada, and uh, he's in the horse and country uh, TV in England, which has been around okay. quite a long time. Yeah, yeah we're working yeah. on something with Brazil right now too because we have a lot of followers in Brazil. Really? As well. You're gonna be yeah. in Brazil too. That's exciting. We were watching mm-hmm. it on HRTV at the restaurant. There you go. Yeah, and I, I was, I was, um, my calzone got cold. Let's just say Aww. that I was a little distracted watching. He was working with a, a really cute little pony who had some significant trust issues, and mm. I was, I was fascinated by it because some of those 
behaviors are behaviors that we saw in Glenn's pony PT Scooter when we first Rescued. got him. Rescued. Rescued. Yes. yes. Uh, luckily, his were not nearly so deep seated, and it, it wasn't that difficult for us to work through them. Uh, mm. But it was fun to watch that and see how he dealt with it and how the pony came around and went, oh, humans, got it. You're good. You're We're okay. Like, You're yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. It is nice to see that light bulb go off and they really do show it too, don't they? It is a lot of fun. He, he really does get the challenges too. They don't, uh, they don't hold any bar, you know, bar no holds for, for him. Oh, no, they, they do not give him easy <laughs> students when he no. does this. And, and your, your father Monty is how old? Oh, he'll be 79 in May. And he's Look out there that. doing that. And I'm going, Oh, oh yeah. man. He, yeah. he, he, he believes in the language of Equus down to his so very good. soul, doesn't he? Absolutely. You can tell. It's just complete and utter confidence in how it works. In the language. That's actually the essence of it, Jen. You're exactly right. And that's what you're going to learn from Andrew McLean, I think, today. You'll see the parallels that he's learned over a lifetime as well. Um, he, he could be dad's brother, but he's quite a bit younger, I think. Uh, but he has had years and years of, of the language of the horses and elephants. So you got to listen in on this. Ooh, it's so interesting. I didn't know about that part. Oh, yeah. Elephants, too. Cool. Yeah. Well, let's get right to it. <laughs> All right. Well, up next, we have Dr. Susan Raymond. After this, from Index Fund Advisors. Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate, He's a sugar bear. <laughs> you know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament, and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios, risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at ifa.com. That's IFA as an Index Fund Advisors. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. Dr. Susan Raymond is Communication and Programs Officer, Equine Gulf at the University of Gulf, Ontario, Canada. Susan is, is heavily involved in the education programs at Equine Gulf, and she's an instructor and a course creator of the management of the equine environment. She was involved in the air quality research, which provided the practical recommendations to the horse industry on stable design and management. And Susan has completed her PhD investigating the effects of, are you ready for this, exposure of horses to myotoxins. That's dangerous. Welcome, Dr. Susan Raymond. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's our treat. I love what you've done in all the research and uh, the, all the things that you've done with horses and your background really are perfect for Horsemanship Radio. I'm, I'm excited to share you with, with all of our listeners. I love how you talk about safety first. How important is that to you? I think it's very important um, in terms of, I think we as horse owners and those that are involved with horses, Sometimes we don't give enough appreciation in terms of our own safety or for the safety of our horses. 
and it's it's very much a you know a fun thing to go out and work with our horses. That's why we do it. But we sometimes don't always look at the whole environment and some of the dangers and safety aspects that are that can be found in that environment. Mm. And and uh, when you say environment, I was reading some of the research that you've done, and uh, it's not just safety for you. It is uh, creating uh, an equine environment based on toxins and air quality and all those. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. I, I've never known a scientist that studied the air quality in a stable, so I'm curious while we've got you here. Right. Um, yeah, now we're looking back quite a few years ago, but um, I'm very interested in what we can do as horse owners to both prevent problems from occurring and also treat some problems after they have occurred. Uh, we take our horses and we put them in, in somewhat artificial environments in terms of housing them indoors, um, depending on where we're coming from in geographical regions. And we're mm-hmm. also in the same indoor environment. And I think it's very important to look at uh, both how we design our facilities, but then also all the organic matter that we place inside our barns, mainly hay and bedding, and just what that effect can have on our horses that might be stabled for quite a few hours every day. Uh, one thing to point out with, with horses, they're a little bit different than other livestock groups. We don't really expect our chickens and pigs to run marathons, um, mm-hmm. but our horses are mainly, uh, in some cases, they're high-level athletes. Uh, we also, uh, for the most part, allow our horses to live out a longer lifespan, so they can be exposed to a, a great many different housing situations throughout their lifetime. And the same as with people, um, both people and horses, as we age, we can develop different sorts of issues in terms of environmental sensitivities. Mm-hmm. Allergies, things like that as well, yeah? Exactly. Allergies and, you know, some other environmental sensitivities and, you know, asthma, somewhat related issues with both people and, and with horses as well. Sure. So... Uh, so air quality, it makes good sense. We've got a huge oxygen machine in a horse, and we expect that of them if they if they carry us around at all or, or drive or anything. Uh, what's the ratio? Is there a perfect ratio? I know you're in Ontario, so I know it's difficult to be outside in some part, sometimes of the seasons, but uh, is, is there a perfect ratio of being outdoors to being indoors for horses if we could come up with one? I think it'd be really hard to come up with an actual ratio, uh, both in terms of what we expect from our horses vary between discipline to discipline and breed to breed, and also in in terms of environmental conditions, it really varies from how enclosed up a barn is. One one barn is not the same, uh, sorry, one housing situation is not the same from barn to barn to barn. We do a wide variety in the horse industry. I think um, looking in terms of having your horses outside as much as possible, and you raise the point of geographic region, and of course Mm -hmm. today is a very snowy, cold day up in Ontario. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, and um, having our horses outside all the time isn't, as you said, always practical. Um, The same with very hot uh, regions. It may not be practical to have them outside all the time you know, for sure. opposite re- reasons. So I think looking at housing your horses as much as possible outside, and if you can't house them outside 24 hours a day, if it's not practical or if it's not 
feasible for that discipline, looking at the environment inside, both with design for all seasons that you're exposed to, and then also management of the organic material that's in your barn, both for the good of you and your horse. Mm-hmm. Right. We're in there working too, I suppose, maybe not as long as the horses. But uh, So you've probably been all over the world looking at barn designs and housing designs. Is that right? Uh, somewhat. A lot of our, we've, we've done a lot of things that are traveling, but also with our uh, one strength of, in terms of our online programs is we have students and guest speakers from all over the world. So one, I guess, perk in terms of being involved with this type of program is I get to peek inside mm. virtually the barns of uh, people from all over the world and, and same with other other students that are involved with our programs. We get to see exposures of what happens in, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, Australia versus what's happening in Canada and Eastern Canada and Western and then the U.S. and also more tropical regions as well. And, and so I imagine you're going to say that the design should be different for the different environments. But if you had to have the design today that you think in the current research, what would it look like? Tell us what a, what a maybe six-stall barn might look like. Um, I think at one point it, it varies in terms of what you're going to use the animals for, but I guess in an ideal situation, um, I would look at having access to the outside from the stalls would be a, a okay. real, if you have the, the space. Um, mm-hmm. If we're looking at uh, unlimited space and resources, um, having access to outside, um, looking at a, a well-designed, ventilated barn. If, if, for example, in our region, you know, we have winter and summer and fall, spring. We also have humidity variations uh, between daytime and evening. So looking mm-hmm. at a barn that's actually designed in the wintertime when you close up all the windows and doors, it still is well-ventilated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important point that sometimes is overlooked. Um, looking at what types of beddings that we're using in the barn, um, making sure the horse is not, ideally not in the barn, but at least not in the stall when we're mucking out, things like that, looking at Uh, whole management options as well. Good. And, okay, so maybe the height of seat, what makes a well-ventilated barn, even if you've got colder heat outside? Is it the the ceiling heights? Is it the openness, the closeness? There's a a, a variety of things. One is looking at, um, ideally, a barn should have permanent openings. So these are are inlets and outlets that are designed within the facility that are open all the time. Um, Saying that, we don't want drafts on our horses. Um, Mm -hmm. So there should be... um, good air distribution between from stall to stall to stall. You don't want a very well-ventilated center aisle, but stagnant air in the stalls where the horses are. Right. So looking at ventilation. Also, depending on the geographic situation, looking at insulating your barn might also be of interest. Um, Again, it really varies. You have to look at where, where the region where you're designing your barn, and that will really have an impact on how it's designed. Okay. And tell me about bedding because, yeah, that made good sense when you said that out loud, that uh, if you've got a lot of particulates floating around in the air that are coming from the bedding, that would bring down the air quality, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's the, the two main sources 
traditionally in a, in a horse barn in terms of sources of dust are both the forage and the bedding. Um, mm-hmm. Traditional forage is long-stemmed traditional hay, and that can really vary in terms of the dust and mold, um, in terms of how it's uh, the season of which it's, it's in terms of the growing, both growing, harvesting, and how it's stored has an impact on its quality. The mm-hmm. same is true for bedding. Uh, one popular bedding is, is straw bedding. And um, mm-hmm. the, the, the concerns with straw bedding is it's generally not as absorbent as some other beddings. It can be quite dusty. And also, depending on the growing season and how it's um, taken off the field and stored, it can also be quite moldy. Uh, mm-hmm. When we look at some of our other beddings, um, a good quality shavings or some of the other non-traditional beddings can be quite absorbent and lower in dust than the straw bedding. What do you like? What do you use for your horses? Because I know you're a rider. I am a rider. Unfortunately, I do not have a horse at the moment. Ah. Um, but yeah, but my I think my you know it really varies. But my my favorite bedding of choice is a good quality shavings bedding. Um, yeah, that's my preference. But that can really vary as well. And I have come across, I was fortunate years ago with all the research, practical research that we were involved in, I uh, had exposure to a lot of different types of bedding um, from peat moss to some of the recycled mm-hmm. paper products and uh, mm-hmm. some of the, uh, there's a lot of um, compressed wood pellet beddings that are on the market yeah, now. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, especially in Canada, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, yeah there's, and again, it, 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 there's an ebb and flow in terms of what's on the market and uh, in terms of what natural resources are being used in, in terms of what products. Um, there's a lot of good quality beddings out there, but I would really caution people to really do their homework. Uh, make sure that the product that you're purchasing as a bedding is truly an animal bedding and isn't, say, a byproduct from another industry. Um, it's, not just, it's not just a waste product. It's, it's something that's quite important in terms of the quality uh, that, uh, that we put into our barns. Is there a fear that there's chemicals in there or something that would be um, unhealthy for the horse? Oh, absolutely, yes. There's some, I mean, if, if you have access to, say, a free horse bedding, uh, I think Uh-oh. you might want to take a look at <laughs> what it I is. I see. <laughs> um, there's, um, there's lots of different products that are out there that may not be suitable for horse beddings. Uh, when we look at wood products, you don't want anything that has been um, uh, finished at all in terms of it has any preservatives in it, um, any sort of waste wood products. There's things that with waste wood, there could be glues or other sorts of things that have been used in the processing. Um, when we look at things like paper beddings, uh, there can be some very good quality paper beddings, but you also don't want things that have... Um, say, glossy prints and heavy metals in the ink, uh, yeah. glues or staples. Um, like, it's wonderful to make use of a recycled product, but you have to look at, you know, what the product is um, and how it was um, stored as well because a lot of recycled products, they can be exposed oh. to a lot of moisture and mold. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, again, you just you, you have to do your homework in terms of what bedding that you're choosing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. You're really caregivers. You're you're a holistic approach to the to the whole design and management of the barn. Then, yeah, I think it's yeah. we take on this responsibility of our horses and and of ourselves. And I think we really have to look at the whole picture. It's um, I think 
we we tend to some people you know we might get tied up in ter- in terms of the romantic view of being involved with our horses which is wonderful but we have to look at caring for them um, in terms of all their needs and then our own as well and then um, I feel if you look at different aspects of horse housing if you do it in a responsible fashion it will be both responsible for you and your horse and safe for you and the environment and it's a whole I think everything is part and parcel with itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So I don't know how you got into this. I, I, I know that you've you said that you've ridden young racehorses before. You've been in jumping, dressage, trail riding, and even dabbling in endurance now. What, what is a ride and tie? Is that oh, where you right. go overnight? Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that was, uh, that's sort of my more recent um, foray into the horse industry, but that's um, involved with the endurance riding and, and a ride and tie um it's, it's quite exciting it's 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 they're races with one horse and two people <laughs> and um the one rider is on the horse they start off and they're, they're usually quite long in, in terms of distance and at some point the person will get off their horse tie it somewhere and then you as the runner will find your horse get on it and then it's sort of a leapfrog effect Ah, um, so, so basically, you have um, two people for every horse that's in the race, and it's um, it's it's just it's a lot of fun. It's it's a way to get out there and do some riding, um, you know, outside with a bunch of other good people, and they're they're quite yeah. they're quite exciting. Wow, that sounds really fun. We'll have to look that up. Google yeah. a little ride and tie on there too. We'll yeah. have to come down and uh, and show it off a little bit. We'd love to have you as a a guest uh, at Monty Roberts' place and. In Solvang, California, it sounds like a lot of fun. You guys would, you guys would have fun talking design and management. It's one of his favorite subjects, and oh, uh, and horse and horsemanship is definitely uh, common ground with you guys too. So people are, st- you have students. You're a professor, and you have students coming to your University of Guelph, there, University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And are they studying what you're researching now too? Are you teaching this this uh, design and management for equine environment? Uh, we do. What we do at Equine Guelph, we focus on online education for basically the industry. So both mm-hmm. at a kid's level and then as adult level as well. One of our main programs is uh, with our online programs, we have both 12-week courses and then we also have specialized two-week courses. We have a whole range of online courses from um, safety and then management of the equine environment and stewardship and horse behavior, and they range from, um, you can take them on an individual basis, but you can also build them towards both a certificate and a diploma level. Uh, With our two-week courses, we focus on uh, very concrete subjects within a two-week period. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have colic prevention, equine biosecurity, and then a horse behavior and safety course as well. Fantastic. Biosecurity. hmm? Yeah, so that's uh, reducing the risk of infectious disease. So it's um, infectious disease specialized course. Fantastic. I have a question. Please, mm-hmm. Jen. If I might jump in. Mm-hmm. Uh, can stables that are set up for biosecurity, for example, a um, quarantine facility, and a stable that is set up to optimize the horse's uh, environment to stay healthy, are they mutually exclusive or can you do both? That's a good question. Um, I think you can do both. 
Um, I think, as you pointed out, a, a barn that's specifically designed as a quarantine facility with the idea um, that you might be housing compromised animals, it, it does have to be designed differently, obviously, than a stable that is um, more run with the idea that it's healthy animals that are in it. Um, but there's some aspects that I think that are, are um, common for both designs. And what would those? What would that be? What What are some of the things that we would have to become? Because what makes me think of that is I live here in Ocala, Florida, where horses are very transient, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. sometimes it's difficult for show barn managers to set up their stables in a fashion that reduces the risk of the spread of disease. Because those horses, they travel all over the country, but they also mm-hmm. travel within stables frequently. The horse will move mm-hmm. from trainer to trainer. And are there certain aspects of a healthy, well-run stable that are common to both good biosecurity measures and um, a healthy environment? Yes. Well, I and I know not every facility has this opportunity, but ideally you would have a special quarantine barn for your animals that are traveling. Um, and I know not that that's the ideal situation. So you would have a set barn that as your resident population, and then the ones that travel, um, ideally for the first two weeks after they return, they would be housed in the quarantine barn. Now, I know that not every facility has that opportunity, um, but there's things within, if you you don't have access to a separate building to house your traveling horses, uh, there's some things that you can do within your own stable. Um, The ones that are traveling Ideally, you would have them, um, say, on the, the outside stalls, so they're not in mixing with the rest of the horses. Um, there's some aspects in terms of uh, your stable management. You would then, the ones that are traveling, you would um, reach last in terms of feeding and mucking out, so you're not going from your uh, resident animals that haven't traveled and back and forth to your traveling animals. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of ideas in terms of managing, how you're managing those animals and the use of equipment. You might have your equipment in terms of, you know, the, the muck out um, wheelbarrows and that kind of thing have ones that are just set aside for the ones that have just returned from travel. Um, so that I think there's a lot of things that people can do in terms of how they manage that they can minimize the risk of infectious disease. Um, an important thing is just washing your hands. <laughs> it's that uh, mm. we, we know we are supposed to do that, but um, when we care for animals, you know, we're really touching them, touching their environment, and really, you know, looking at, you know, washing your hands between horse to horse can really have a big Im- impact as well. Mm. So we, we should have a little Perel at each stall. See, Jen? You, you, Good you idea. <laughs> I like that. Can you I borrow that do. for horse tip daily, please? Is yes. it okay if I borrow that? Okay. Yeah, there's actually, um, if you look on our website, on the Equine Guelph site, we have a biosecurity risk calculator, and oh, we okay. have a lot of good information on that webpage in terms of just practical, hands-on things that you can do at your own barn. Um, we have a, um, a range of, uh, basically, they're, they're PDF handouts, but they deal with practical tips on what you do if you have a traveling horse, when that goes to shows and then returns. Um, uh, what to do at your barn, um, how to properly clean and disinfect your barn. Um, so we have a lot of really good hands-on practical tips 
on that's that great. webpage. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. We'll send people. We'll have your webpage on the show notes so that people can get to you, too. Thank you, Susan. Okay. Well, great. You know what? I would love to have you back, Susan, if we could, to have a, a bit of a tip. I know you do work a little bit in the emergency rescue for horses yeah. and animals, too. I would love for you to think about a tip and, and be our guest again, if you don't mind. Would you do that sure. for us? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We we have a strong, I mean, as you said, we have a lot of different interests here at Equine Guelph, but mm-hmm, one of our upcoming um, interests is emergency preparedness and large animal rescue. Um, oh, and we perfect. have, uh, yeah, that would be wonderful to have another okay. discussion about that. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Susan Raymond, for joining us today and being with Jen and I. Next up, we meet world-renowned horse and elephant trainer after this word from Monty. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online, too, on our forum. And there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. Dr. Andrew McLean brings together a rare combination of academic and equestrian achievement. He's the winner of the highest Australian science award called the Eureka Prize for Science, and he's also an accredited horse riding coach for over 30 years. He's written five books as well, and he's represented Australia in inventing, and he was shortlisted for the Australian team for the World Equestrian Games in Stockholm in 1990. He's ridden to Grand Prix in show jumping and FEI levels in, the, in Grand Prix in dressage. Andrew is also well-known for his acclaimed systematic approach to elephant training in Nepal and India, where his work is endorsed, continued, and supported at a government level. Welcome, Dr. Andrew McLean. May I call you Andrew? Certainly. Ah, thank you. Thank thank you very much. much. Uh, Thank you for honoring us with your presence. I know that you've gotten up at the wee hours. It's 6 a.m. in Australia right now, and we're just honored to have you. I just got off the phone with Monty Roberts, my dad, and he said to say hi and appreciates you being here. Oh, thank you. We're passing on my very best regards, too. I will do. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump right into your background. Um, Not everybody knows everything about your background, but we're going to put links here so they can study what you've done. But what came first for you, horses or elephants? Oh, horses for certain. Um, I came from uh, what you would call a horsey background. My mother was a top show rider and my father was a show jumper, so I was well and truly into the European sorts of riding from a very early age and I lived on an island in between Australia and Tasmania and on that island all we did is I had three brothers and we just chased kangaroos uh, mm-hmm. after school on our horses and all weekend and had a lot of fun with the horses so the elephants really came much later in my life in fact in 2006. In 2006 so you've been at that for some time but so the horse background you were highly competitive growing up then. Very much so. I mean, not so much as a child because we just did it for fun. And then I went away to boarding school because on King Island um, we're, we can only go to a, a low level of school. So I went away to university and, a school and university in Tasmania and um, I took my horse with me who was an island-bred horse. His uh, ancestors had swum ashore from a shipwreck 
Wow. And um, wow. in my horse's mother was the first one tamed from this wild group of horses. So um, he had an interesting history, but he could really jump. And so when I uh, took him to Tasmania, I started jumping, and uh, he was certainly more skilled than I was. And um, he, mm. I learned a lot from that horse, and he took me right to the top. Wow. What a fun background. And so athletic. I imagine those survivors, they're, they're, they're probably the most athletic of the crop. Um, I read in an article uh, about you that your mother believed that to have a good relationship with an animal, that you should give it communication skills with people. How, how do you do that? Um, I do it simply by thinking that, that uh, that's what training really is. Instead of the word training, if you think of it as communication, because in the same way as you set up a very good relationship with people by having very clear communication mm-hmm. and you remove elements of unpredictability so that, you know, the, pers- the people that all of us love most are the ones who we can communicate with the best where if there are any elements of unpredictability, we know what to avoid in, you know, in saying certain things. And so mm-hmm. it makes, makes the relationship really um, trusting and, and secure and I think it's exactly the same with the horse, that very good horsemen um, try to convey this, you know, that you have to be very clear and very consistent in what you do, do it in the same way um, each time, and the horse begins to learn what your, what your signals are. And in the same way, when he responds, you respond as calmly and clearly as possible. So I think that uh, no matter what sport you do with horses, or any other animal for that matter, mm. it, it's just based on very clear, consistent communication. And I think, you know, we take it for granted when you're a good, effective horse person, but most of the world are not clear. They, they give ambiguous signals to the horse. You know, they, maybe the pressure of their hand says, I want you to do something, but the body might say the opposite. And so the horse... Mm-hmm doesn't know what to react to and mm-hmm. they're pretty good at reacting as you know to <laughs> body and and to tension so that's true um, i think it's one of the biggest challenges for horse people like myself and uh your father and, and a few others to try and teach people to be a whole lot more calm in their way they move amongst animals mm-hmm Yes, that's true. Do do you um, study the physiology of the horse uh, that is involved in the training as well, like heartbeats, adrenaline levels, things like that? Or, I know you're a scientist first, so um, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm actually first of all a horse person. I got into science later because I was just really curious, and um, I got, in fact, I always I did a degree in zoology, so that really got me started and got me interested mm. in animals. Um, and, but it was, of course, my love of animals that got me there in the first place. Okay. But then when I started to inquire about training, and particularly horses, I'd already got into... I, I became an event rider, so I got into a team. I represented Australia in 1989. And it, it was really that major peak in my career that uh, propelled me to go searching for a way of understanding what on earth is going on when we do what we do with horses. So... That really was what the, the whole start of it for me was about. And then I started to look at, uh, and more recently, uh, measuring things like, you know, with heart rate and stress and mm-hmm. what reins do. I have a, uh, some students who are measuring rain pressures that riders give when they do all the ah, things yeah. they do in 
riding and leg pressures and, and also a seat mat that gives pressures of seats. It's really fascinating, but it's quite complicated. So it took mm-hmm. us a long time to see what mirth was going on there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, yeah, probably way above our, our layman um, rider here, which is, includes me. But I, I do, I am interested in your your simple principles of operant conditioning for training. I know that you believe in operant conditioning for training, which is a reward system, and um, and that you use it both for horses and for elephants. You say it can be applied uh, to them gently in both both breeds, both uh, species. Uh, and uh, what, what what I know in elephants, I read that you do feed them cane, but you also habituate them to voice as well. Do you use um, treats for horses in training as well, or just the elephants? Well, many people do use treats for horses. By the way, when I say it's complicated, I probably may made it a bit uh, sound too scientific. I don't mean it's complicated in any scientific sense. I just mean it's um, it's a little bit what most horse people do know in the sense that. You know, you begin when you train a young horse using pressure release of the rein for leading forward and the leg and any kind of pressures. Everyone uh, uses different pressures but uh, or different systems use different pressures, but nonetheless it's still the release of pressure rewards the response always. That's how it yeah. works. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's... And, and then from there uh, you start to uh, add associated cues so, gotcha. for example, in riding the horse, it might be a seat cue, it could be a voice cue, it could whatever discipline you ride in, there'll be different types of cues that people prescribe. But um, it goes in that order. First of all, pressure release to train, um, okay. and using some, you know, using a lot of positive reinforcement too, and then mm-hmm. uh, the associated cues become installed on top of that. So they're sort of like a layer on top. But mm-hmm. the actual positive reinforcement. I do use food sometimes, look, clicker training, for training certain things like Piaf and Passage. That mm-hmm. helps a lot. In fact, one of our best horses in Australia at the moment is one that I trained here, and it's interesting because when he comes back to visit me, because he's coming down my way to do a big competition, um, mm-hmm. when he goes into my tie-up stalls, he immediately does Piaf. cute. <laughs> the place reminds him of it. But I'm not as fanatical about it. I'm, I think I'm much more realistic than many because I don't think that uh, training with feed food treats is the answer to everything um, mm-hmm. because I do think <clears throat> to make horses safe, they still have to learn to respond to pressure of the reins. You know, if, you, if the horse bolts off towards the freeway or towards a cliff, you're definitely going to be pulling on the reins and you need to make sure ah. that cues are deeply enough established that the horse will stop. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's the most important aspect of that. But with the mm-hmm. elephants, it's quite a different story because, you see, we don't ever have a rope on the elephants. Um, we don't have any mm-hmm. restraining uh, mechanisms. So when I first begin them, and uh, in all the places I'm working, I work in the, um, in the wildlife forests, um, of northern India and southern India mostly, and also in southern Nepal. And in and those elephants are used by the forestry to track down poachers, and there's a lot of poachers, mm. and it's really awful. Mm. And so we set up this, uh, not, it's a not-for-profit um, charity um, called HELP, and um, 
this the HELP organisation. Um, it stands for Human Elephant Learning Program. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's based on just uh, using food rewards to reward certain behaviours, but they still begin with pressure release. We still squeeze the animal in a certain place. Um, sometimes we use a stick because they've got quite thick skin, but we might mm-hmm. maybe press them with the stick. As soon as they give a glimmer of the correct reaction, we reward mm-hmm. him with food. Uh-huh. And um, elephants are good to reward because, for one thing, um, whereas a horse can mug you, you can train him not to, but whereas a horse might mug you for food, mm-hmm. with the elephants, we reward them directly into the mouth. And in order to get food into the mouth, they've got to keep their trunk out of the road, and so they can't <laughs> start molesting you with their trunk. So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so they always put it. They soon get the hang of that. That takes about five minutes, and um, so we use cane sugar or um, sometimes bits of sugar cane sometimes mm-hmm. palm sugar, sometimes banana, whatever they've got locally. Mm-hmm. And um, so as soon as the, the elephant gives the correct reaction of forward or backwards, all the basic things for what you might call uh, starting him, you know, break, as we say in Australia, breaking the horse in. Mm-hmm. Um, when we start or break in the elephant, we, you, we add these food rewards and we teach him to pick things up from the trunk. And then gradually we fade the food rewards away so they're not needed. But they do I help... See get a start. Sure. It, it enforces the communication there. So yeah. are they into pressure animals like horses? Into pressure? Yes, to some extent they are, yes. And, um, but, you know, they soon learn that if you, you know, it's all to do with what you release for, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. you know, if that's the trouble. If horses lean on you and then you or move into you and you remove the pressure, then you actually reward that response. And I think that's right. the hard thing for a lot of people because they just don't realise they're just rewarding the wrong response all the time. And mm-hmm. yesterday, for example, I had a two-star rider I was helping in the cross-country section, which is um, some work I, I do quite a lot of, and mm-hmm. um, the horse um, didn't want to go into the water. But when mm-hmm. the rider was using his legs to urge him to go into the water, when the horse balked, the rider stopped using his legs. And so... I explained to him, you probably don't realize it, but you're actually rewarding him for not going into the water. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because the horse uh, you know, said, I'm not going in. And the rider said, yeah, well done, you don't need to. But yeah. yet the rider's head was saying, I really want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need to be telepathic in that case. But yeah, so what did yeah. you tell him to do? I said, you've got to keep going with your leg pressure and increase it when he balks and even increase it more when he goes back. But the moment he steps forward, release and say, that's release the right it. answer to the question. Perfect. And then we did this for two minutes and suddenly he was flying into the water and loving it. And uh-huh. he, he couldn't believe that he'd gone so far with that elementary mistake. But he, he made the same kind of mistake in all the areas of his work. Um, just little small holes that I explained to him, if you tidy this up and use your pressure correctly, you'll, all those things will go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huge in all the horse training, uh, not just eventing, but it's interesting to hear because they have so many opportunities to balk, don't they, in eventing? Yeah, they do. Yeah. So that's why you really got to set up very clear communication signals in the beginning that when you're riding over the small jumps and teach him all the different shapes that you teach him that he, he, he must go in a straight line. Any small diversion is the wrong answer because, you know, it's easy to run out on some of these what we call skinny jumps when they're very narrow. 
um, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. in fact, that's the new, that's the way eventing is going these days. When mm-hmm. I was eventing back in the 80s, 70s and 80s and early 90s, um, you know, the, the big jumps were just big and dangerous. Mm-hmm. But now they're, um, to make it safer, because I think since 1998, we've had something like 48 riders have died in competition. It's been mm-hmm. quite a deadly sport. And mm-hmm. um, it, they did need to tidy it up. And so in doing so, they made the jumps uh, much safer, uh, but much more technical, so mm. narrower jumps. Narrower jumps. So that's that. Um, it's interesting you say that because one of the biggest challenges in racing is when a horse feels claustrophobic going into those starting stalls or starting gates, as some places call it. Um, so is that the concept that you're working on? Is this narrowing is a bit more of a challenge for that um, sneaking through it? Yes, uh, definitely, yeah, and that's that's the trouble. I mean, n- and not just loading into barrier stalls, but also loading into the trailer, um, mm-hmm. going into any sort of confined area. You know, they're really animals of the open grassland, and yeah, going right. into dark places is something that they they just naturally find a bad idea, um, because I guess that's where you're more likely to be attacked. And mm-hmm. I even in my work with dressage, it's fascinating. I do a lot of work with a metronome, and so I, I measure the speed of one leg on a circle because it makes a difference because the horse has to do dressage. And if you keep the horse, uh, make sure the rider squeezes the horse to go a bit faster when he slows and slows him down when he goes a little bit too fast, it's mm-hmm. amazing what a calming effect that has. Mm. And I began to wonder why, why is it that the rhythm is so important, just keeping a rhythm? I think it's so true in all sports. And... I started to realize that's probably why humans march to war, that if you could, instead of a ragtag bunch of people going off with a weapon to war, if you got them all to um, basically walk in the same beat with the same stride length, you got more confidence out of them. It kept them more disciplined. That's and, interesting. Um, I think it's the same with the horse. So what I notice is that when I'm teaching in an arena, and it may be an arena with brush on the side or, or wooden rails, um, doesn't matter, really matter, but as they head towards a barrier, they start to slow down. And as they get to the barrier, they speed up and run away a little bit. And the difference is only about two or three beats a minute. But if you catch that and just speed the horse up a little bit as he slows towards the wall and then mm-hmm. steady him on the way away from it, they become really calm. And we've even shown it with heart rate monitors. So I think mm-hmm. it's the same thing about as the horse being claustrophobic I think it's, you know, horses, are, they just love the open spaces and the, uh, so much. It, it's, it makes them feel safe because there aren't too many animals that are faster than a horse, given them a bit of distance and open space, but mm-hmm. um, they're more likely to be, you know, captured in a confinement area. Yes, yeah, they're not quite cave dwellers. That's, that's the carnivore, I think, mostly, right? Yeah, it's, it's not the flight animal. Yeah, it, um you, I read somewhere that you said uh, that it takes a while for people to drop their weapons. I, I assume you mean that metaphorically. I was just thinking of that when you were marching off to war. But um, when they're training, is that like a crutch for people before they can uh, build their confidence uh, to to use their pressure and release and, and more of your techniques? I think so. I think it's one of the big dangers of... Um of, uh, using any kind of uh, training weapon, anything that, that uh, can hurt the horse, 
is that you, you instead of sometimes you need to do something, you know, like with the Julie halter to increase the pressure to get the horse to do the right reaction, but then very mm. soon it becomes as light as a feather. And it's, just, it's mm-hmm. the same with anything that you use. The big problem is that if people don't have the tact and the timing, mm-hmm. they end up hanging on to them for too long. So the rule mm-hmm. art is the whole teaching. And um, I think it's, it's not easy to get everyone to do it. I think it's probably not so difficult to get the majority to do it well, but there's always that small number of people that um, they, they, their timing is not so good mm-hmm. and they tend to um, get it a bit wrong. Just, mm-hmm. just naturally the timing is so different amongst us all. In my work at the university, um, if I throw some, I often throw a ball in the air and I get all the students in the classroom to clap when the uh-huh. ball is at the highest point. And there's always a few who just never get it. They can't, they can't predict that moment. Raise your and hand, please. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's not me. I don't want to volunteer for that one. Yeah, that makes good sense. It does that we all have um, muscle memory uh, as well as, you know, it's little things like uh, how much your parents threw balls around when you were little and you got that muscle memory going too. Um, you, you know, I think, yeah, I think brains are, are trained, but they can also, you know, it is hard for people that um, have been around horses their whole life and, and trained in the traditional methods to, um, to change that muscle memory, even if their brain wants them to so badly. But I, I think that's probably our challenge for, for those of us over 50s that are um, looking to really get away from that, uh, maybe a harsher pull on things and uh, a little less pressure on the, on the reins. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And you, mm-hmm. can't, you can't ban them from riding. Mm. So the thing is to just is to just teach them. But I think I always think knowledge is power, and if you can teach people how things work, then whatever discipline they do. Um, when I teach people to do things that I've never done in my entire life, um, for example, um, the Western writing that we, we call it Western writing that you guys do in the states so much. It's mm-hmm. not it's it's big here, but it's not that big. But my background's in European writing, but. Regardless, I do teach quite a lot of people in that era, area and just find out what it is they want to do, what they're trying to achieve and what cues they use. And then from there, I just get their timing better. Mm-hmm. And it, it really uh, is the same in every discipline. There are people with very good timing and some with the slight miss. And I think with a horse, it is so important to be absolutely perfect in your timing. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. you know... There's some interesting studies comparing dogs to horses, and with dogs you can be even one or two seconds late in your, um, you know, if, if the, you teach a dog to sit, you can mm-hmm. say, good boy, two seconds late, and he will know that he's being rewarded for sitting. But for the horse, you've got to be really on time. Really quick, huh? What, what do you say that is? Is that two seconds these days or three seconds one well, second. I think you really, I think you really <laughs> have to be on the moment, but I think the oh, horse can gosh. probably span a few seconds. But I just think that he, you know, he loses yeah. the plot of the of the actual task quite quickly, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, I think that's an interesting, interesting aspect. You know, it's because the horse, see, the dog, like all predators, has a prefrontal cortex like we do, where they can mm-hmm. imagine, visualize time, and you mm-hmm. can project ahead, and you can think retrospectively and we take it for granted that you know that because we can do it all animals can do it but all animals can't do it and 
the, the limitations can be huge or a little bit. So chimps and dolphins can do a fair bit of it because they're a cooperative predator in a complex environment. Um, animals that are also cooperative, like dogs and lions, can do quite a bit of it. Um, animals like cats can do a little bit less, but they can still do some. And foxes, they're opportunistic predators, but not cooperative so much. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, But grazers and browsers struggle with it more, and I think that's why uh, we see them fairly similar, and perhaps the only exception would be the elephant as a grazer mm-hmm. and browser, but I think he's got a head start because it's got a trunk, and so when you've got something ah. like a hand and you can pick yes. things up... Yeah. You have yeah, to be that able makes to imagine sense. what you're going to do with that thing. Yeah, uh-huh. Andrew, I, that you yeah. mentioning about timing brought a question to my mind. You see a a variety of ideal response times with different horses and different humans. So, do you think that the horse's previous experience with humans? has a effect on what his ideal response time is going to be when you're dealing with a simple um, pressure release situation. For example, if you have a horse that's had a lot of poorly done traditional training and you're trying to take that animal and, and help him understand what genuine pressure and release means, is that horse going to be more is his response time going to be more critical than one who's, for example, a blank slate Mustang or Brumby off the, off the range? Yes, I think definitely that, that's a huge factor in it. And that, that's always the trouble for, um, for uh, training horses, is that if you can get the horse that's basically naive, it's going to be a much easier prospect to train because you, um, you know, everything's new, and if you do it well, he'll learn it well. But when you've got a horse that's had problems in the past with training and he's had quite uh, confused and poor training, yeah, definitely the timing is, is much more critical and they will mm-hmm. go through a range of other responses. And so I often think of it rather in a kind of mechanistic way that when you ask a horse a question with any kind of pressure, be it lead, rein or leg, you know, there's a, he has like a pull-down list, like on a computer, and what you want is that at the top of the pull-down list, you want the right answer to be, but it's not always at the top. It's sometimes at the bottom. So, mm-hmm. you know, you first might hop on this horse and squeeze him forward, but his reaction is not to go forward. His reaction might be to um, go backwards or stall or kick out or rear or spin or bite your leg. And so, you, you, you know, it's really... That's where pressure release is so critical to mm-hmm. teach him uh, what is the right answer because his biggest interest at that moment is to release the pressure yet he just doesn't know how because in the past his bad training has caused him to learn that actually they the leg pressure goes away when you kick out or when you leap <laughs> so it's, yeah it's uh, so when i look at problem horses i really imagine them as a kind of profile of all of their past um as well as their natural tendencies too you know like a I deal a lot with warm bloods, and so warm bloods tend to be a bit slower in the pressure release department because they don't care for it so much. They, um, they're they quite food motivated, so it's not an intelligence thing. They learn very quickly mm. if you use food motivations mm. because they just can't wait to get the food. But <laughs> I can relate, when it sure. comes to pressure, um, they'll stand and just look about. And mm. so, you know, sometimes you have to use stronger pressures 
And so that's why you see, in, in fact, in all the European training, they always use spurs um, and mostly um, a whip. And mm. because these warm bloods are so difficult to motivate. and mm-hmm. um, But once you do and you get them a little bit motivated, a bit more on fire to go, then they're, they're really good to train. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I do think the background makes such a big difference. Yeah, it does. It does. And and you know, I would love to get into the conversation of that you mentioned PTSD and elephants, and I imagine horses as well, which is the sort of a, a semi like ours post traumatic stress disorders that have happened mm. because and how that reacts, but. Um, but we've got to give you back your day, Andrew. I hate doing it. I could listen to you all day. I know Jen feels the same way. Uh, but, oh, what, you. I, you know, we're, we're really excited. I know we're going to have you to the farm at Flag is Up Farms in May to be a part of our um, international instructors meetup. And we couldn't be more honored to have you on that first day. And I, everybody's been talking about it. are really excited. So we will get to see a little bit more of you. And if you would agree, I would love to have you back for a trainer's tip. It's something we, we'd love to get from those that are so learned as you, if you will have us. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you very much. Then we will see you down the road really soon, Andrew. Thank you very much for your help, Dr. Andrew McLean. Next up, we have our training tip this week with Carrie Scrimma of ACTHA. She offers a training tip. Well, you'll have to listen in. (laughs) Welcome back, Carrie Scrimma. Thank you so much for agreeing to come back and giving us a little bit more of your extensive knowledge, all your experience. And I always wonder when I get to talk to somebody who has the, the long career that you've had and uh, been around horses your whole life to tell me what you like to be asked tell me a tip that you like to give people because you almost always know something that um, seems so obvious to you but people must ask you all the time and you like to share it tell me what that is well you know there are so many little tips um, that you know that are important but I'd say uh, one of the most uh, things that I think that are very important to a trail to a trail rider is, you know, we've heard a lot lately in the horse world about desensitizing a horse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've heard that, Debbie, and and um, you know, I, I certainly think it's very important to desensitize a horse, uh, you know, but I also know that horses are hardwired. Mm-hmm. Um, to spook. They're a prey animal. Okay? Can you desensitize a horse against everything? No. No, You can't. You know, I mean, you know, if you go out trail riding in the the Rocky Mountains, you might run into a bear. Very Mm -hmm. few people have bears in their backyard. You know, (laughs) they can't desensitize their horse. So, what is it that you need to be able to do? You need to be able to ride a spook no matter what. There you go. Okay? Because it's going to happen no matter how much you desensitized your horse. The most important thing, I think, in riding a spook is that the riders keep their heels down. I think it is essential to the balance and the, the whole, you know, feel of a horse that these that riders have their legs close to the horse's side mm-hmm. and and they have their heels down mm-hmm. because that anchors you your heels 
anchor you. They are what, you know, helps you stay down and stay with this horse. Mm-hmm. The other thing, you know, the other thing is flexibility with the heel down. You know, um, it, it's not that you should lock your heels down and make a stiff leg. It's okay. that it's that the joint itself, you know, is flexible and can move. Okay. So when you when you have your heel down, you don't want to be you know in in a uh, rigid locked position, uh-huh. but there should be a flexibility in that joint. There should also be a bend in your knee, mm-hmm. um, because that helps again you know with flexibility. The um, the place where your spine meets your hips mm-hmm. needs to be flexible. Needs to be very soft. Um, so that you can move with this horse. But, you know, this is this is a, a living creature. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you play tennis, your tennis racket can't do anything different from what you tell it to do. <laughs> okay, good point. <laughs> Nor could your golf club, right? But now you're right. on a living, moving, yeah. breathing, mm-hmm. you know, animal. And so your body must remain soft and flexible um, okay. with the ability to move with this animal. And so, you know, I, I think this is the strongest tip I can give uh, riders is to say that I feel heels down are important to anchor you onto the horse. I feel that it is important to ride with your legs close to the horse. Okay. Um, and that rigidity is... Uh, is an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> uh-huh. So what I'm hearing, Carrie, being over 50, I'm hearing uh, be flexible and uh, don't stiffen up when your horse spooks. And I'm thinking there's a lot of women out there going, uh-oh, I got to go back to the gym. <laughs> because number one, I got to learn to breathe so I stay relaxed and don't get rigid. And then I'm going to have to be real flexible in those hips. But I guess that's, that is the truth. You've got to stay flexible. You've got to learn to breathe. We're going to have to do an, uh, a uni lesson on, you know, our Equus Online University, and we're yeah. going to have to add a component of breathing. And, and Oh, uh, yes. And breathing mm-hmm. is, you know, it is very important to, you know, to keep breathing. I, I think that's how the horses, you know, they have a way of knowing when humans are frightened. Um, and that's how they do it. You know, when we, when we hold our breath, um, it changes our seat. It changes a lot of things. So uh, that's how a horse knows. You know, if a human can stay relaxed, it's, it's like, oh, you know, the captain thinks it's okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> why should right. I worry? Must be okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's um, great. That's so, great. so staying relaxed on a horse is, you know... Uh, is important, but you know, just just as a brief tip, you know, a quick tip, um, I think it's important for riders to be flexible to breathe, but to have their heels down. Okay, um, that's the reason. You know, a lot of people wonder, you know, why the heck do my does my instructor keep telling me to put my heels down? <laughs> now, um, <laughs> he doesn't want you to fall off on his watch. <laughs> also, you know, if you you know, I think I call it, you know, when I'm teaching, I call it the fatal fetal position. I call it <laughs> fatal fetal. <laughs> you know, what what riders want to do is 
look down and basically assume a fetal position when something happens, okay. and which means they kind of their heels come up, they go onto the ball of their toes, and they look down, you know, and kind of crouch. Well, that's the fatal fetal. They're, they're you know, the next thing is going to happen is they're going to hit the ground. Uh-oh. We'll have to come back and talk about helmets sometime, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's very, it's sensible. Uh, Helmets are great. And and they're being made, uh, you know, better and better and more comfortable. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about helmets. You know, growing up as an English writer, basically, in the hunter-jumper world, helmets are natural to us. Mm -hmm. They're they're part of the... uh, part of the costume you know um it's a little hard to get these cowboys but uh we we, all we can do is the concessions are to head covering now i've gotten that far but you know a cap is not the same so we're gonna get there we've got we've got uh, scientists working on helmets that look somewhat less than a mushroom look (laughs) but they (laughs) they do have a brim on them anyway but well thank you carrie scrim for for that additional Lovely knowledge. I love having you on the show, and we'll have you back. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty has been on his sold-out tour this month in Germany, April 4, 6, 8, 11, and 13. And in May, he hosted certified instructors from around the world, And then, May 31, 2014, it's the Night of Inspiration with Monty at Flag is Up Farms in Solvang, California. The spaces are really limited on this one, so book early by going to Facebook Events, facebook.com, Monty Roberts Events, or admin at montyroberts.com. You can email admin at montyroberts.com. And then June 1, the very next day, we put this thing together kind of like a bucket list. Uh, June 1 is Life Lessons. It's a workshop at Flag is Up Farms also, but it's based on the work of man who listens to horses. It's his uh, autobiography. It's his um, New York Times bestselling book. So it'll be a really fun weekend. And then August 4th, through 8th, we have an opportunity to see Monty's Special Training Clinic at Flag is Up Farms in California. And that is, I think we're into our 7th or 8th year with that. It's a lot of fun people from all over the world. Again, you can uh, see more at these contacts. Jen, do you want to give them the contacts? Sure. You can go to MontyRoberts.com or you can get Monty's calendar or and call 805-688-6288. Thank you. For details about today's show, go to horsemanshipradio.com, where you can find links and photos and more information about our guests. And as always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under www.facebook.com forward slash Monty Roberts and Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Monty underscore Roberts. And be sure to visit all of the other great shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. And I'm going to steal your closing line, Debbie. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. (laughs) 